G'day, dear listeners. We are again going on the Tanakh Tour this November, and we want you to come with us, don't we, Jason? We do. We want you to put your deposit down for a seat now, and you can experience Torah Pearls, this show, for nearly two weeks. It's going to be amazing, isn't it, Tovia? Not just are we going to be going through the weekly portion together as we had gone through the entire cycle and discuss so many fascinating topics, but imagine not just studying Isaiah, but imagine walking in the palaces that Isaiah walked in. We'll be doing that in the city of David. And not just the city of David, we're going to be going far north. We're going to be going down south. We're going to be spending some very special time in Jerusalem. We want you to come with us. Places are filling up, but you can Go to truthtoyou.org, click on Tanakh Tour of Israel, the link where you can secure your place on the bus with us this November. That's important because whenever I'm not in the north or south or east, I'm usually in the west. Okay, that didn't work. I just came out around the world and thank you for joining us once again on truth to you.org that's truth number two letter you.org it's season two and a half of torah pearls i'm jono and joining me in the virtual truth to you studio all the way from ireland is jason of spiritualbabies.net g'day mate how's it going i'm actually quite excited to be like revisiting something this is i know i this is the first time it's been done isn't it i suppose it is the first time that it's been done what happened of course was that uh, last year uh, Torah Pels is usually uh, you, myself, and Rabbi Tobia Singer, but uh, he was getting his nails done or whatever it was. Do you remember what it, what it was last year? I, I was getting a pedicure. <laughs> I think he was getting his nails done. Anyway, whatever it was, he wasn't available. And uh, so you and I did it, right? And mm. what we happened was... We did a great job. <laughs> we did such a good job that, that uh, everything we talked about was so high and lofty that we thought, you know what? That was a bit over everyone's head. We better dumb it down a bit and get and get Tobia back on the show. <laughs> so we checked with him, and and he he hasn't uh, booked in to get his nails to get his manicure again. So from Indonesia, the author of Let's Get Biblical: Why Doesn't Judaism Accept the Christian Messiah? Volumes one and two. You can get a copy from his website, outreachjudaism.org. That's outreachjudaism.org. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Tobia Singer. Hey, great to be here. Great to be back with you guys. I miss this. Um, can I ask um, Rabbi Tavia to tell us, uh, we're in the book of Vayikra, right? Yes. And does, does um, Vayikra, what's, what, if we had to define Vayikra, what, what, what would it mean in English? So the word Vayikra is just because it's the first word of the book. Uh, it's really a very important word, and it means, and he called, in the past tense. This actually is... Uh, became scandalous in the church because the exact same word Vayikra is used in um, is is used in the famous Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 and the church deliberately mistranslates it not that his name was called Vayikra Shemo but it actually changes the translation to Vayikra, even though it has the vav in the beginning, which makes it past tense or perfect tense, and it switches it, his name shall be called. So strangely, so the first thing is this the little, um, it's actually a, a, a famous word because of what the King James, and actually it goes back to the Vulgate, did with it. This book typically is actually not called, it's called Vayikra generically, but the, the name, the Jewish name for this book is Tairas Kohanim, the laws 
of Koihanim and the laws of Kedusha, and that, that's what the book of Leviticus is about. And in fact, Torah's Kahana means the laws and teachings of the priesthood and of what is sacred, what is not sacred, and how a Kohen has to conduct himself. I, maybe I should just share one point of why this is very important. Mm. I, I, I'm a Kohen. I'm a, I'm a direct descendant of Aaron, who's my great-great-grandfather. And, um, and, you know, when, when we actually stand in front of the congregation to perform the priestly blessings, which we must recite uh, in exactly the way God had instructed us in the book of Numbers, we actually make a blessing. There's a blessing we say, which very few people, if you're not a Kohen, they don't know the blessing. But it's, Baruch atah Hashem, Aleikeinu Malachalam, Blessed our Lord, King of the Universe, which means that you have sanctified us with the sanctity of Aaron, the high priest, and you have commanded us to bless the nation of Israel with great love. And this is a very interesting thing, that the Kohen had to have very great love for his people, because the Kohen not only ran the sanctuary, but the Kohen was the great teacher of the Jewish people. The Kohen was one who was constantly in the temple working, whereas the laity mostly were out farming and occasionally visited. We'll be dealing with that as well. But a Kohen has to have a lot of love for his nation. It's very, very critical because we know also that the Bible tells us that Kohanim were involved in judging the nation. The Kohen and the priest in your community judges the nation when we deal with that in Deuteronomy 17. So Kohen has to have an enormous amount of love, but the last portion we talked about was Kedoshim. Also, it's a very similar. Kedoshim is that talking to the whole Jewish people. Kedoshim to you, you must be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. So you have to emulate me and be holy. And then we go through all the ways that a Jew must behave. And actually, most of them are not a Ben-Noach as well. That you, in order to be holy, you have to not put a stumbling block in front of a blind man and, and so on and so forth. But now, now we're talking about the, the Kohen who has to be an example for the Jewish people so there's special laws that pertain to a coin. That's what we're going to begin with now. And it's not just God. That's why we see incidentally the double language here. Um, it says, It's actually as like a triple language. God said to Moses, say to the priests, the sons of Aaron, I don't know how they do the translation, and should say to them. Mm-hmm. So it's, the key is that it's this is not only for Aaron, but it's for Aaron and all of his descendants throughout time. And Hashem has preserved the Kohanim for all these centuries and centuries, for thousands of years, we have preserved this a part of the nation of Israel for the coming of Mashiach when all these things would, many things we're discussing will be restored and many of the laws we're about to discuss now apply to every coin in the world. And the first uh, instruction uh, on that list is, uh, it says, none shall defile himself for the dead among his people except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, also his virgin sister who is near him, who, who has had no husband, uh, for her he may defile himself, otherwise he shall not defile himself 
uh, being a chief man among his people to let me, let me just Let me just here, we'll, we'll go through this rather quickly. But here, a Kohen, this is not a Kohen Gadol. That means this is not a high priest. This is any Kohen in the world. He actually must. A Kohen is not allowed to come into, into contact with the dead. Mm-hmm. I cannot uh, go uh, stand within eight feet of a dead body or be under a tent and even in the same building as where there's a dead body. I cannot do that today at all. Thank you, Hashem. My parents should live to 120. I'm not allowed. You know, but I don't even talk about them because if... Talk of another, but a Kohen must. Actually, the word there is not may. I don't know how the translations go, but it, it actually is a mitzvah for a Kohen to become contaminated. The contamination, very important here, is not a bad thing. It's not evil. It's, it means don't translate. I know contaminated in English conveys one message and that it's bad. It's a spiritual impurity. But it, it but he must become, um, he must become, uh, contaminated to his immediate family, God forbid, when they die, when they're 120. The sister is very interesting. As, as long as, this is what we're about to come to, the sister, as long as she's a basula, meaning she's never been married, she's a virgin, so to her, she he can become Tommy if God forbid she pass, passes away. However, if she marries and has children, we'll see that in a moment, then she now belongs to a new family. Hmm. They shall not make any bald place on their heads. My head does that all by itself. Nor shall they shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings on their flesh. Now, we've already uh, talked about this. Now, this is specific to the priests, as you mentioned, Tobia, but uh, that is uh, that instruction is also mentioned uh, for all of Israel in, I think, Leviticus 27, 20, uh, 19, verse 27. Right. Yeah, but here is very unique uh, because here uh, refers to um, the Kohen is a separate prohibition that a Kohen could not exhibit uh, signs of any kind of mourning. As you'll see, they're, they're, um, they're, they're not allowed to walk around because normally if someone dies... Uh, God forbid. So then, uh, the person, uh, who's mourning, if it's a parent, has for one month, they have, they're not allowed to shave at all. Mm-hmm. So actually the prohibitions here are much broader that a coin cannot publicly, uh, exhibit these signs of mourning. Okay. Jason. I just wanted to, um, uh, clarify a couple of definitions for the people that are listening at home because the stuff that comes up soon, I know might sound very discriminatory towards certain groups. Um, and there are, there are two words which seem to pop up a lot. Um, one of them is to kind of profane, and one of them is um, holy. There are going to be different versions of those. But it's worth remembering that holy means uh, separate and different. Yes. And, when, and, and often, when we look at the text, there, there are two ways that works. There is different for us, and there's different for God. And a, a good way of representing this would be uh, later on we hear that if a a priest is born with a defect, now he might have um, a dodgy eye or a limp or some sort of uh, disease or illness, he can't perform the, many of the duties that the priest performs. Um, and so on the one side, we can say that this they only allow... Uh, perfect, if you like, human being, human beings physically and mentally to perform these things because 
God God wants a perfect and separate group of people to perform them. And on the other hand, much like when you go into um, a traditional synagogue, you'll find that the men and women are separate. The men and the women aren't separate because the women shouldn't sit next to the men. It's so that both groups can concentrate on their time in the synagogue and they can project themselves forward and remain in a holy place, just the same as the priests have to remain in a holy place. So holy can be holy for God and it can be holy for yourself for keeping yourself separate. So it's important that when we read later on about these people that are maybe seem to be set to one side because there's something wrong with them, that it's more to do perhaps with the priests trying to stay on target rather than, oh, that guy's got a really bad limp. Maybe he won't be able to carry that today or because he's got a depth perception problem. Will he be able to deliver the show properly? That's not something that they should have to consider. So that's the one thing about the, the holy option. And then on the other hand, the profanity... Um, I saw a really great thing a few months ago that said sin is the temporary is a, is the temporary disconnection from the Creator. So when a person becomes ritually unclean, that doesn't mean he's in a sinful state in the way that we might have heard about it in the church. Mm-hmm. It literally means that he's kind of put an overcoat on of that. There's a barrier to the position that he should hold, and he has to go for a process to take that coat off. It doesn't change who he is on the inside doesn't really change how God looks at him or his position and his relationship with the creator. But it does change his uh, external ability to perform certain tasks and keep those tasks holy. So I don't want people to think that when they hear unclean, it means that they're wicked. And I don't want people to hear that when a person's got a physical or mental illness, that makes them somehow less human than somebody else. Mm. It's, it's literally about staying focused on the task in hand and, and remaining yeah. sanctified in God's and eyes. I'm glad that you that you uh, highlighted that because really, I mean, as a as a chapter 21 is a hard sell, particularly in this uh, day and age, Tobia. I mean, it's, it's no, not exactly politically correct. No, no, it look. is. It is. You just have to understand it, and I'll explain it to you very simply. Um, actually, um, I love what Jason said, not because it was correct. I'm joking. It, it, I love what Jason <laughs> said. I love you, man. I'm kidding. He actually brought up absolutely something perfect. I, I didn't even think of using that as an example. First of all, notice the blemishes that a coin could have that would disqualify him from serving. As it turns out, let's say he has huge stomach ailments. Let's say half he doesn't have his belly button as an Audi or an Innie, or he has, <laughs> you know, his, I don't know, he has his, he had surgery and his whole chest is cut open. That somehow is not a problem. It's really, it's not a problem. Let's well, say it's, not, it's had, not mentioned specifically. Is it, it isn't it says, specifically. It's very simple. It's very, very critical. And I love what, uh, what Jason said, which is not so usual. And in that, uh, Jason said, use the example of men and women that are separate in, in, in a, in a, in an Orthodox synagogue. And the reason is, is that we don't trust the men, honestly. The women could see the men's section. It doesn't bother them. But for men to be sitting around women, it's just hard to concentrate. And here's the key word that I, I love that Jason uses, that it's distracting. The What we find about the coin that has a blemish is that all the blemishes 
are things that are very easy to see and will distract people when they are watching the Kohen going through every ritual from um, uh, from sacrificing, going to the mikveh, changing his clothes. And that's why if you look at them, these are not just arbitrary thing. Let's say he has a, a problem where he has one lung. That's that's a humong. You can live with one lung. The terrorist is to say you can, person has one lung. But if you notice, all of them are very distracting. So if a man, for example, has very, very long eyebrows that go all the way down, people just look, look at him and they're very distracting. If a person has one limb, much longer than the other it's very distracting so these are all very visible if a person is has his genitals have been completely shattered and they're not this oh. so people sorry but people will notice that as he's changing his clothing as he's going to the mikvah and so on so right. what's very important here is that these things is that's why by the way the coin who has such a mum who has such a a blemish, um, he can eat truma all he wants, and he should, and he's not allowed to come into contact with the dead. The only mm-hmm. thing is that in the public display of when he's being sacrificed, if you have somebody who has their, a very, very distracting feature, what it will do is it will distract people from, instead of look, thinking about the carbon, the word carbon means karov to come close, everyone's go, oh, give a look at this guy, he has no nose. And that's the key point of it. So it's all, if you look at it, these are all things that are very well known. If someone's known to have, you know, you know, sh- you know, shattered gentle, so that's another obvious problem. Men is a hunchback. It depends how you translate the word. These are all very visible, mm. and the key is not to distract. He's entitled to everything else. He just can't be in, in the public view. He can't be performing this because it's just like if you have women and men sitting together in a synagogue. So it's it's I, I've no, it's, it's just distracting for so men. When, when we get when we get to chapter twenty two, right. uh, is this a different set of? I mean, it says whatever man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper who has a discharge shall not well, eat of the holy. That's Now here's the uh-huh. key. I, I got to explain it to my apologize. Why am I apologizing? Because I'm Jewish. Know. No, Jews are <laughs> around. Yeah, but hello. I'm sorry. What? I'm not sure yet, but I'm sorry. I'll come with every Jew is apologizing all over. Why do I get so guilty? So we have to understand. The word Kedusha is very beautifully also said by Jason, separate. You know, it's interesting that a prostitute is called the same thing, Kedusha, the same root, that she separated herself from the, from the nation in a different way. It's interesting, the word, the word for prostitute is the same word. Um, but the key point is how does Tommy become Tommy? Yeah, this is critical. And that is what Tuma all has in common is that there had to be life there of of some sort and then that life leaves departs and when that life or potential for life departs a person it what replaces it so a vacuum takes place so something enters into that vacuum that's a tumor that's why the greatest we're going to encounter this now so we can just go through it and understand this better we hear tumor what it means is who becomes tummy so a man who's had an emission as an example so even though so, uh, you know, um, it, it's only a potential child, but actually that omission of a man would make him means that life, which there is, that's life, literally is wasted. Life is lost. So he becomes impure. Now, it's not nearly the amount of life that was departed 
is nothing compared to a dead body. Why? Because it was only a potential life. So therefore, he's able to go to the mikvah, and already that night, will come to it, is going to be in Truma. If a woman has her menstrual period, so that what does that mean? It means that a potential, an egg dropped and it is never fertilized, and therefore a potential for life, so she becomes a nida. But the way to, how does a nida, a woman who becomes a menstrual, she's not bad or evil, she's just how does the need to purify herself? So life left her. So she again goes to the mikvah, you know, after um, after after her her, her her menstruation period. Then we have the highest highest form of tumor, and that's the tumor of a dead body, because they have a full blown person. So really, if you, what tumor is is the vacuum is what fills the vacuum when the kedusha when life departs. Very critical. So there's something not only not bad, it's it's something that is normal. It's fine. There's nothing evil, and it's the, these translations are terrible because they strip away the, what is being conveyed by these sacred words. Okay, now so we, we can move through a little faster because now you're now what we see is. You know, now will make sense here. There's a there's a curious uh, set of verses here uh, from verse ten on, and says no concerning this um, uh, the um, offering. No outsider shall eat the holy offering. One who dwells with the priest or a hired servant shall not eat the holy thing. But if the priest buys a person with his money, he may eat of it. And one who is born in his house may eat of the food. If the priest's daughter is married, and this is what you were talking about before. Uh, to oh no, if if she's married to an outsider, she may not eat of the holy offering. But if the priest's daughter is a widow or or is divorced, has no children, has returned to her father's house as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food. But no outsider shall. So let's break break this all up. This is really very interesting. It's very important because it deals with the issue of slavery. So this is very, 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 very important. Mm-hmm. People understand, and then we'll we'll deal with the with the daughter in a moment. That's much faster. The key point to understand is that you know when most people think of slavery, you know they think of what uh, what white people did, what the Europeans mm-hmm. did to black men and women, and the crimes that were committed against them. Um, and they were, they were disgraced and they were kept as garbage and they were killed. The, the worst things are human property and their lives are miserable and they tried to escape. And if they did, they were beaten within a hair of their lives. And many slaves tried to escape and they were beaten. Some of them died from the beating and, and it was fine. And it was one of the things, thank God, that, the last country to lead, to to stop slavery was in I think 1980. I forget the name. But anyways, the key the key point this even though the word you're seeing the word slave come up in your translation, and the word slave sounds just like the word slave as in Alabama 1944. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the same thing, and it seemingly superficially appears to be similar, like you own a person, the person works for you, whatever it is, and therefore it sounds like slavery is not only okay, it's actually encouraged and all these things. So this is the major, major mistake in the term. This requires explanation because on a lot of people's minds, a lot of people 
attack the Torah for this, and it's a big mistake. A slave in the Torah had nothing to do with the modern slavery, and Eved meant this. Now, there's two kinds of slaves, and the Torah is distinguishing between the two. We're going to first talk about a slave who's not Jewish. There is another kind of slave that's an indentured servant. Let's say a man stole, and whatever it is, he doesn't have the money to pay back. Or, you know, or he just is in poverty, destitute, so he hmm. becomes slave for a very short period of time. This is a Jew. So he's just temporary. But what does it mean buying a slave? So you need to understand this. In the ancient world, if you didn't have a family, you had nothing. You know, today, if you're in, in Australia, in New York, and something goes wrong, someone wants to attack you, whatever it is, you call 911 or whatever it is, and the police come. This didn't exist in the ancient world. What protected you in the ancient world was one thing, the clan, the family. If you didn't have it, you were dead. You were dead, you were done. So the Evid is forget slave because it's so distracting when words are the same. And Evid means that you join the family completely. You literally just as a son, that just as a, as a father is his son belongs to him. And, but the son so enjoys the privileges of having a great daddy, but also the responsibility of being his child. So exactly in the same way, an Evid becomes a member of the family. And you can always tell it's so, because it becomes so obvious because there's never a problem in the Torah anywhere with a runaway slave. But what do we find in the opposite? Just the opposite. Slaves, when the master said, oh, you could go free, what did the slave do? The biggest problem they had was a slave going, I don't want to go, right? <laughs> I don't want to leave my best. I love it because you were part of the family. Yes, you had the responsibility of the family, but you totally joined the family without having the biological connection. And in fact, if we look at the Torah, who were these, who were these Avodim? When, when God, uh, when, when Abraham was looking for a wife for his son, who did he appoint? Who did he entrust with this monumental thing? Eliezer, his Eved, he was a part of the family. He was the one who was most entrusted. And in fact, the, the laws of, of us, if one acquires a slave, is they're part of the family. The halacha, the Jewish law, they're actually more than the family. They're entitled to more rights in the family. And we're going to see it here in a moment. Let's say you're in a house and there's only one pillow. You want to know who gets the pillow? The, the Evid gets it. The slave mm. does. If you have one mattress, who gets it? The slave does. If you eat, are you allowed to eat? If your if your Evid didn't eat, no. He has to be fed first. As the as it says, call me Shakona Evid Konarabai. Whosoever acquires for himself an Evid has really acquired for himself a master. You're basically there's so many laws protecting the Evid because obviously there's some idiots who are going to abuse this relationship. That 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 the uh, the tires tells us that you have to treat the evid first, number one, and you can't. You're not allowed. To, we learned this. We did this in the class. You're not allowed to ask an evid to do something for you that you wouldn't do. You can't ask an evid to clean if you wouldn't want to clean your toilet. You're not allowed to ask an evid to do it. You can hire labor to do it, but evid is not allowed. You cannot ask an evid to do something that you consider too disgusting for you to do. Not allowed to. Hmm. Now we're going. Now I'm going to go further. 
I'm going to show you this. It's so good. Your mamish wouldn't go kissing Hashem all over the place. An Evid, so therefore, but never joins a Jewish family. So you ask, does he have to keep mitzvahs? And the answer, he does. He has to keep all the mitzvahs that are applied to a woman, which means all positive commandments, all negative commandments. And, and he's just exempt from those that are positive commandments that are time bound. He's fully so much part of the family that he actually becomes like a Jew. And by the way, if you free a slave, if you free him, he becomes a Jew immediately, a complete in every way. Now, here's what the Torah is saying. This shows you how, you just if you, if you have a Torah in front of you, if you want to give it a big kiss, go for it. It's, you have a good right to do it. So what now we have, we have a Kohen who has an Eved, right? So the question is, when the Kohen receives truma, when the Kohen receives the tithing or the sacrificial meat, could his Eved eat that meat? Could he eat the truma? What's the answer? Seems the answer is yes. Of course he can, because he's a member of the family. However, and this, this, this is so wonderful. This, he's family. Of course he's entitled to, just like the Kohen. He literally is part of the family. He's, he has more rights than a woman, than a daughter that gets married to another guy. She can. If he's not a Kohen, she can eat from the truma, but the mm. other can eat from the truma. So, but the distinction is there are two major, this is, I'm overgeneralizing, but this is, this will work for our purposes. There are two, kinds of avadim that's plural the two kind two different ones one evid is one that you purchase who is not jewish purchase means you give him money and he becomes yours like your children are yours they become you could use the word your property but they become your family and and being part of family means he has all the responsibilities of family and all the benefits of the family he's totally part of him and the children of the evid let's say two uh avadim male or female and they have babies the babies are entitled to all these benefits they eat truma they eat carbonus could you imagine mm-hmm. uh, a non-coin can't eat it but an evid can so it's just unbelievable so be so, very careful so now just just this point uh, conversely let's say a man went into your house and stole something mm-hmm. and he sold it and then he I don't know. He ate it all. He, it's not there anymore, but he has to pay you back double, right? He paid twice. Well, he doesn't have any money. He made him a thief to begin with. So then he becomes an indentured servant. That's different. He's not owned by anyone. That means he does not become part of the family. He is there for, uh, for six years. On the seventh year, he's free. He can ask. To stay longer, if he does, they put a nail in his ear because, mm-hmm. and it's considered a bad thing. But they all, you can always tell if you study slavery in the United States, you see the pictures, you know, of, of the runaway slave, you know, you know, uh, um, uh, Mark Twain's, you know, <laughs> the runaway slave was the problem. In the mm-hmm. Torah, you could always tell what the problems were. In the Torah, the overwhelming problem was slaves didn't want to be made free. Yeah. I need to come back to something that he said. So, so slaves didn't want to be made free. That it, it might be that they uh, uh, have have uh, found a wife uh, amongst the uh, other ever. They've, they've, they've yeah, they're married they, now. Yes. They've had children. They don't want to go out. They want to continue yeah, in, in, in yeah. that with their. Now, you said something though, and and I want Jason uh, to uh, pick up here as well. 
Mm. Before, and, and I don't want to get too far off the track, but you said an interesting thing. A priest who owns an Eved, if he should go free, that Eved becomes, you said, a Jew in every perfect sense of the word. Now, how is that to be understood? Jason, is this something that you've gone over before? Is this? No, I've never heard that before. I've never now heard I'm that before. Not only now that, but the Gemara <laughs> says. I'm wondering too. Now, wait, no, only, the Gemara says, just to tell you, I want, I want to drive you guys nuts. Just to tell you, the Gemara describes, actually, in the Mishnah describes that there was one time when <laughs> you wouldn't even believe what I'm going to tell you. Like, there's a number of events like this. What happened was they were in a city and they didn't have a minion. They didn't have ten men. Not only nine or eight or seven. The Gemara is full of these events. And what happened was they needed a, a tenth Jew. So one of them said, okay, I'll free my Evid. So he's now a Jew. And then they had a minion so they can pray. Now, are wow. you telling me that the Evid who is freed is now of the Kohanim? No, 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 no. Who he's is he with? Who, no, of, of which freed. tribe? Now, so the he, reason why I ask this question is because, say, when, when Israel is restored, can he inherit land? Does he inherit land? No, he's the same as someone who's a convert. Okay, so not in, not in every perfect sense of the word. No, okay. no, but, he, but, but what will happen is he'll have a daughter, and his daughter will marry a Kohen or marry a, sure. a, uh, someone from Yisachar or Yudu, and then that'll be there. It'll be their grandchildren. In many of these cases... We, uh, it's too well beyond the scope of the show. Very often these are Jewish neshamas who say, I just want to be part of a Jewish family. But that's a whole different book. I don't mm -hmm. want to get to us with that. Let's no, not get stuck in there, but no, that no, was no, interesting. No, no. So, yeah, so this becomes, so that, that's an Evid Kanani, that's a purchase slave. But the key point is, is they are fully, fully, fully part of the family. They actually have to yeah. do it with them. They can't eat pork. Now, that is in conversely a a Jewish, a Jewish slave. This is a guy who's just stole something. He's got to repay it. It takes mm. six years or five years, whatever it takes. So that person, he's not joining the family. He's repaying the debt. Mm. So that person doesn't become part of the family, and therefore he is not. Uh, he is not entitled to Itruma. And that's the distinction that you see there. Right. And right. now for the second question is a girl, a, a daughter. So as long as a daughter is single, she is. In this aspect, part of her original fa father, the mm. patriarchal, because as it turns out, being Jewish may be conveyed by who your mother is, but being you, what tribe you're from is conveyed through your father. But when mm. she takes a husband, then she goes according to his tribe, and therefore her children are uh, her children acquired the tribe identity of her husband, not of her, and therefore she's departed from the family. So the Torah now tells us a very simple matter, and that is that if she's a virgin, she's a basula, and by the way, my friend doesn't say Alma, if she's a basula, so then she she um, eats truma, she can eat from all these sacred things. She has to be pure, by the way. By the way, in the time of the temple, girls who were not married went to the mikvah every time they had a, a period because they had to be able to, if they were the daughters of Kohanim, because they had to be able to eat from all this priestly food. They couldn't do it in a state of impurity. Mm. So um, so now, now she mar gets married. So what I told you is then she adopts whatever tribe her husband has. If he happens to be a Kohen, she can then eat the truma. But mm -hmm. if he's not a Kohen, which very possibly wasn't, so if they never had children, and let's say, let's say he died, or they got divorced, and there are no children between the two, so then she reverts back 
to being entitled. She returns to, to her father's house, house and sitting there, and, and, and she can she, ease of it again. Of the tumor. However, if she now has a child, which means that the memory of the, her husband is now retained, a family has been produced, so mm-hmm. then she cannot return to eating. Um, then she cannot return to eating truma unless she's a widow, and as a widow she would be. Uh, then she can marry a kohen, not the kohen gadol, and then she could, um, and then then she can eat uh, truma all she wants. Right. Um, flying along, uh, the rest of twenty-two mostly about uh, offering animals that, or, or not offering animals that have defects. Uh, it goes on to say there shall be no defects in them that are that are blind, that are broken or maimed. They have an ulcer, an eczema, a scab. Should I just cover the halala? Like, Go for it. Just because that's like no one will get. Put it in uh, a nutshell. Okay, yeah. There's, so there's prohibit, ro- prohibitions. Can't marry a, a coin, can't marry a prostitute, he can't, and so on. But he can't marry a halala. What does that mean? I don't even know how they translate this. This is a, a verse 7. I, I don't know how they translate but a halala is the following. A Kohen is not allowed to marry a divorcee, okay? Not allowed to. Mm-hmm. What happens if they do get married? Let's say he he does it anyway, okay? He marries a divorcee. Um, so the the marriage is chal. That means they actually are married in Jewish law. I don't want to get technical. It is a marriage. He just it's a, not a it's not an appropriate marriage. Now they have a daughter together. Okay, they mm-hmm. this Kohen who married a woman who is let's say a divorcee or she's a prostitute, if they have a daughter, that daughter is called a cholol, and she then cannot marry a Kohen. So it is a blemish on her status because her father married someone who's forbidden to him. So that just so people understand that. Okay. Okay. All right. Moving on to chapter twenty-three, uh, very. Well, this is very, very popular. This is yeah, and, and a very well-known chapter, and it highlights all the uh, uh, the feasts to the Lord. And it begins interestingly with Shabbat. That there's the the reminder there: six days um, uh, work shall be done, but the seventh is a Shabbat, a solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Right, and we're going to have, incidentally, it begin. I'll tell you it very just a fast thing. Um, in, in, on holidays, let's say on Passover, what portion of the Torah do they read in the synagogue? Like they're not reading the, the normal parsha, so they read this. This is what's read in the synagogue. And it's interesting that uh, they actually start reading a little bit earlier. For uh, if uh, you, if you have a shor or se, uh, an, a ox or sheep that has a a child, so for seven days you can't take the child away from the mother to bring it as an offering. So you're going to see the sevens and seven and one coming up mm. constantly and constantly, and we're going to address that. And the other thing is, this is very critical. The sevens are going to come up constantly. Seven is perfection. We're going to discuss this in a moment. But one point here that's very critical or you'll be lost. And this actually becomes an issue of great controversy because there are groups that went crazy with this wacko point. And that is that normally, conventionally, unless we're, there's some modifier in the, in the sentence, the word mm-hmm. Shabbat means the seventh day of the week, Shabbat. Right? But the word yeah. means the time of rest also. 
Okay, or it's a time rest, a time of rest with God. We, it's like you're married for six days, you're working, you don't have time for your family, but once a week you sit down with the one you love, with Hashem, and you're just you and God. So that's what Shabbat is, time you're setting away from, for, for God. And the key is that the word Shabbat, therefore, is used constantly in an, somewhat, uh, it's not really that unconventional, there are other chapters about this, that Passover is called a Shabbat. Sukkot is called a Shabbat. Um, 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 Rosh Hashanah is called a Shabbat. It's all called a Shabbat. And it's t- a time of meeting God. We're going to see the language over here. Come, it's going to be very made, but very careful because there's going to be one very famous verse that many have misunderstood. But Shabbos in chapter 23 that we're reading now, it's a Sabbath view. Be careful. In most cases, except for here, right in the beginning, that Shabbat does not mean Saturday, the seventh day of the week. When it's referring to the holidays, it's also called the Shabbat. And that will, you'll go, oh, now I understand. Now, Passover is seven days. So you have a, a seven day, but it's a different kind of date with God over seven days. So let's, let us move on now. So just, okay. that's, that's, so, that's the key warning. That's okay. Jason. Um, yeah, this is going to be a ramble, but I will try and um, keep it concise. Um, it's kind of funny because last week we did the show on Israel News Talk Radio called Israel on My Mind, and we talked about Bible codes, and oh, yeah. I expressed my disbelief for much of those mechanical code-finding things. Mm. Um, but I'm going to kind of do that Are you going to give us a few of that now? Are you going to give us a bit of, well, bit not, of Bible code? Not really. It's just something that um, it struck me, and that's why I asked. Tobia to clarify what Vikra um, meant at the call oh. of, the, of the top of the show. So Vikra, um, you can say, is um, to do with calling, and Ima is to do with speaking. And I find it interesting that the beginning of the Torah portion says, and the Lord said unto Moses, speak unto the priests of uh, the sons of Aaron, and say unto them. So there's like a, there's a speak and a say, and we've got a a call and a speak in the in the Torah portion and the chapter it's in, in the in the book it's in, but um, in a bigger sense, and this might pickle people's brains because it's difficult for me to think about. This whole book for me is uh, from from the from the instructions for the priests, from the instructions for what people can bring to the priests, and the priests can then offer up to God, and how then um, people should timetable their years is all about directing people back to God. Um, and it kind of turns, it takes a person's life. Imagine a person's life is like a velvet purse and it flips inside out what people normally think about on a day-to-day basis and pushes everyone back to God, which is for me a bit interesting in that if God created the universe from a void and if God lives outside of time and space, and physics and science and if he created time and space and space and physics and and science for us to have an environment to live in that means that he gave us a vocabulary if you like of hours and days and of speech and of molecules and atoms to talk to each other and to understand him in and sometimes we get very distracted by all this other stuff by the TV and by gossip and by how we look to other people and by um, our, our, our youthfulness or oldness of the way we look and what we wear, what car we drive, how we get on at work, all this other stuff 
can take up most of our conscious and unconscious um, time. But this Torah portion, it calls you <laughs> and then it speaks to you and it says, look, all of what you should be thinking about is the person that was responsible, the person, that's terrible, the God that was responsible for giving you everything that you have. And so it calls you back to concentrate as a priest on what you can and can't do as a human on how you should timetable your life. And what I love about it is it outlines all of the feasts and, and the Sabbaths and the, and, the, and the sanctity of Shabbat and the sanctity of Passover and Shavuot and all the other ones that come up. And it says that you need to forget about this other rubbish that's going on. That's not real life. That's just a side effect of the world that God created for you. And he chose you to be in the time that you're in because you're the perfect person to fill the role of the life that he gave. So every year we're going to read this Torah portion and it's going to remind you, call you back to get you so you're magnetically pointed back towards God. And um, it, and what it also does really nice is that if you mess up one year, you get a chance to redo it better the next year. And what we have to remember, although we might have a really fantastic, I know I am going on a little bit, but we might have a really fantastic spiritual journey this year. It's not perfect. Because the perfect year will be the year that we can make an offering. Even as a non-Jew, I will be able to go to the temple with a perfect goat or a perfect sheep and make an, and give it to the priests and I'll be able to give that as a burnt offering to the creator. And at that point, when we can fully live out the text, that will be us living in a, in a real world, com committing ourselves to the commandments in real time. Um, and we might not be able to do that this year, but we will be able to do it because of the annual nature of the cycle of life. Mm. So I just, I was thinking about that over the last few days and uh, I just wanted to get it in there. I know it's a little bit off, off, um, what we were talking it's not about. Really, it's not really, Jason. <laughs> you said something very brilliant because I, I apologize, uh, but uh, uh, you said something you, you, you actually addressed a monumental question. And that's what we're going to find here in this chapter. And then there's after Passover, so they, we're called upon to count for seven, uh, for 49 days, and the following is Shavuos. And the reason why we count, we know very well, the Jews, when they left Egypt, they were at the 49th level of Tumor. So each day we have to count the day, every day, right? And the question is like, in this way we're raising ourselves up to becoming, per the nation was then prepared to receive the Torah. And there's a, like a, a monumental, like wild question. The, the, the prayer that one says that this is the, this day of the Omer is like one sentence, a blessing and then a sentence and that's it. How could such a brief statement actually do anything to spiritually lift you up? You should have to, just say for 49 days, you should have to read the whole Torah backwards and forwards and so on, but just such a brief prayer. But the answer is by simply realizing the value of time that you can dedicate to God, as you said, this alone is enormously elevating. And that's the secret of the sphero. So that was very beautiful, Jason. Mm. No, thank you. So uh, you've, you've jumped ahead to Shavuot, but of course we have Pesach, we have unleavened yeah, bread. But, yeah, I want you to go to this part here. So let's go, sweetheart. Go. So verse four, verse 4 says, These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall perform, you shall proclaim uh, their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month, the 14th of the first at twilight, 
is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same, same month is the Feast of Hagamot Sod, unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And uh, on, the, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You do no customary work. And the Lord, uh, you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord uh, for seven days. And the seventh day shall be a holy convocation. Uh, you shall do no customary work on it. Tobia. Yeah, so here now we're going, now I just go a little bit further because here we have um, the Omer, which is the very next day after this, uh, where we have the most, so we have here constantly that all these holidays are called Shabbos Hilochem, it should be a Sabbath to you. So again, this is not conventional. And let, let's continue on here because okay. we're going to get to, now the key point is you have a harvest, okay? And mm. it's in the middle of, the, in the middle of March, okay? You have wheat, okay? Mm-hmm. Y- yeah, you can't, you can't just, Eat it. This is very, you're going to see mixed into this. It's very interesting. I, I'll say it now. It's really very, ah. So in the middle of this, God says, look, you have to understand what belongs to me, what belongs to you. And that's why you're going to see also intertwined in this. You can't eat it just yet until after the wave offering the following day. But also it's going to go into the laws of when you cut your field, be careful. You have to leave over the corners for the poor and so mm. on. That means there's, there's restrictions. This is me. This is for you. We'll continue. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, which I give to you, reap its harvest and you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it and it shall, uh, you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb in its first year without blemish. As a burnt offering to the Lord, its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, uh, an offering made by fires to the Lord, a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hin. You shall neither eat bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So the key over there is that you're going to see throughout this this was the big fight between the the Pharisaic Jews, the Orthodox Jews, and the Sadducees. So it says, Shabbos, which means a day after the Sabbath. So what the Sadducees would do is, let's say Passover came out on Wednesday. So it didn't make a difference when Passover came out. Let's say the first day of Passover was Tuesday. So they didn't, so what they did was they, it says, Shabbos, means the day after the Sabbath. So then they would, that's when they would do this Omer offering. But it doesn't mean that here because in this chapter, we have also other groups that actually have, uh, they actually do the lunar, the lunar, uh, what is it, the lunar Sabbath. Another mm. group that, that's, they do the same, the same exact mistake. This Luna Sabbath group, which I'm not going to go into, I have a video on it and uh, buy my book. I'm joking, but there's a video on it on YouTube. But the key is they, the, the, all of them don't get this. And that is that throughout here, as I'll point out to you, constantly it'll be a Shabbos to you. You're not allowed to do any work. And it's talking about Passover as a Shabbos to you. So therefore, when it says, Shabbos, which means the day after the Sabbath, it does not mean Sabbath here. In this context, it means on the day after the first day of Passover, which is the Shabbos. Because just to understand, this is, many people don't know this. So if you have a seven-day Passover um, festival, on the first day 
And the last day, we're going to read it, but just so everyone gets it, you may do no work. There are two exceptions. We find that in another part of the Bible where you're allowed to cook and you're allowed to carry. But just setting that aside, in every other way, all the laws of Shabbos apply. You cannot go reaping food. You can't plant. All the things you can't kindle a fire from nothing. You have to light from something else. But the key point is, so just get this, every holly, let's take Sukkot. Uh, now, I know people can ask me, what about diaspora? There are eight days. And this is not germane to this show. We'll do another show on that another time. But the key point from the Bible, it's seven days. The first day is a Shabbos. You'll see that in a moment. It's cool. So it could be Tuesday, but it's a Shabbos. It is a Sabbath to you. And the last day also is all work is forgiven. In between those days, there are five days in between. Those days we call typically chalamoid, means you still have to eat matzah, you can't eat bread, uh, so on and so forth. If it's Sukkot, you have to eat inside a sukkah, certainly. But you, you are allowed to do all kinds of work during those days, although it's a Jewish tradition to try to take off from work and not work on the days. But the prohibitions that are like Sabbath, those prohibitions are not in the intermediate days no to most called Chol Hamoid, okay? So that's just so you get it. So day one, day seven are Sabbaths. The middle days are not. And that means that you're allowed to work, you're allowed to do everything during mm. the intermediate days, but you can't violate the restrictions. The Torah says you can't eat outside of your sukkah, you can't eat outside of your sukkah, you can't go eat bread in the middle of Passover. So those things, it's talking about the That's laws right. of Sabbath. Okay? All right. Okay, so 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 to, now if I understand you correctly, what we're looking at here in verse 15, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from right. that day that you brought. Now, that Sabbath there, you're saying, is uh, the first day of Hagamat Sod. Right, that, that's the first day. In fact, you look at the end of the verse. Look, look here, how delicious you go kissing everybody. Look at the end of the verse. Sheva Shabbosa is to me, that there should be seven Sabbaths. What, what the heck is that talking about? <laughs> so it's seven, seven. It doesn't mean the Sabbath, the Shabbos mm-hmm. day of the week. So that's the key. So we more the Shabbos. You can see it now. We'll continue and I'll point them out it's, to you. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's hotly debated this, uh, this question of is it in relation to the seventh day Sabbath or is it in relation to the first day of Hagamot Sod? Um, it's, I've heard many arguments, both from, um, from, from Jews alike and, and from, uh, people in, obviously in the Messianic world. Certainly, uh, those in, as you mentioned, the Lunar Sabbath, um, uh, Sabbatarians. Uh, Jason, are you, you're familiar with this discussion? I am. Um, I've never heard, uh, it explained like that before. Um, uh, but you know, I've also never found it to be a problem. I think it's only an issue. If you're trying to defend an opinion, and I've never had to do that. (laughs) But but you're going to see here, this is very important. I'm going to show it to you in the text. You'll see with your eyes. Okay, so you're talking about the 16. All through. Let's keep going. We're going so count 50 days. days. Yeah, and then there's going to be a Shabbos. And then that's going to be Shavuos. So Shavuos is the 50th day from uh, the second day of Passover. You can see throughout all of this, I'm going to stop the show. I'm going to stop and go, ah, you see here, uh, uh, Sukkot is called the Shabbos. You see here, Rosh Hashanah is called Shabbos. It's not mm-hmm. Shabbos. It's the 15th day of the f- first month or the 15th day of the seventh month. It could be a Tuesday. It's called Shabbos. So you'll see in this chapter, we're using a language that is unconventional, but because the context tells us what does it mean, you shall do no work, you'll see that Shabbos here means 
rest. It doesn't mean the seventh, the, 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 the day that comes after Friday. It means it's a Shabbos Hilachem, it's a Sabbath for you, and therefore, Kom Lechas Avoido, Loisa, so you're not allowed to do any work. So if, if let's say Sukkot, we'll see it in a moment. Let's say Sukkot comes out on, uh, that means the 15th day of the seventh month comes out on Tuesday, it's going to tell you it's a Shabbos Hilachem. Ah, it's Tuesday, it's not Saturday, but a Shabbos meaning you must rest. Kom you may not do any work. So it's very important, just like, you know, you have the famous Daniel mm. 9, where it just says 70 weeks that decreed upon my people. It doesn't mean 70 weeks, it means 70 weeks of years. How do we know that? Because it's using the language of Shemitah. Why is, you have to go to the end of Second Chronicles. So just alerting you, like, but this is going to be obvious. It's not like, oh, the Pharisees, you know, just read it. This is how the, all the lunatics, you know, and we say there are groups who disagree. I just want to make a point, okay? This is like <laughs> saying of the guys in the, there are some Christians who think that you should go to funerals of U.S. soldiers that die and say, we hate you and it's good you're dead. So they'll say the Christians, people, Christians will go, what are you, crazy? This is some psycho group called the Westbury Baptist Church that does this oh, thing. Yeah. These are sects. Almost all of them have disappeared. There's no major, yeah, so Jews who convert to Christianity do these kinds of things. That, that's not, it's not normative. By the way, the reformer conservative movement follow this completely. This is really done by groups that have really, you know, whatever. But this, this is not like, you know, this is like, you know, uh, you know, there's some people who wait six hours after eating meat, eating milk, and three hours, and some people wear a strimo, and some, there's like, there's not like two opinions here. This, this is a, the groups that don't are, you know, way out there. Anyway, and, and there's a history, but it's beyond the scope of this program. So, so let's well, go. to speed it up a bit, let me go from verse 21. It says, uh, you shall proclaim, proclaim on that day, uh, that same day, a holy convocation to you. you. shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute for you forever in the... So there it is. It should be a strength. It should be a Shabbos here. That doesn't mean Shabbos. None of these mean Shabbos. That's what I'm saying. It's holy. And then it says what? And it says, That's what it says. Look, mm. this is Mahamish beautiful. It should mm. be a Shabbos. Look, 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 look. It means there's two pa- I want to make sh- this is very critical. Because people mislead people here like crazy. You got the lunar Sabbath, lunatics, and you have other groups. You got to get this very sure. I'm going to show it to you very clearly. In this context of this chapter, Shabbos means rest and not work. It does not mean the Shabbos, which is the seventh day of the week. Now, it could be that the first day of Sukkot comes out on Sabbath, so it happens to be. But understand, the word Shabbos here means, and that's what you're seeing here. It has nothing to do with Sabbath. So here... We, we, here's the That's what it says here. It's a Sabbath to you. Sabbath here does not mean it's the seventh day of the week. It means the Sabbath means really because the word Shavas really doesn't mean the seventh day of the week. What does it mean? What is the first time the word Shabbos is used in the Torah, in the entire Bible? In Bereshit, what does it say there? It says, what does it say? That God rested on the seventh day. He mm-hmm. made it holy. And he, kivoshavas, so the first time that word is ever used in the Bible, it's not used to indicate seven. What is it used to indicate? 
resting, right? Same thing in the Ten Commandments. No one's going to work on the Sabbath day, but you must rest on that day. In Exodus 20, that's the reason we're given for it, for Zohar. So let's continue. So we have it many times, but you got to get it straight. I'm going to be knocking you over the head here because you because <laughs> this chapter is not, the language is not conventional. Let me just go here to verse 23 and 24. You don't mind if I read in Hebrew first. No, no, just, hang on, but before you even do that, because yes. you did mention just before verse 22, oh, right, when you right. reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. Right. When you reap, you shall gather uh, the gleaning, um, nor shall you gather any gleanings from your harvest. You shall leave them for the right. poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. I love that. I wanted to read it because it is an ex- it's an excellent example of uh, a, a type of welfare, if you like, in the Tanakh, but it's not something that is a handout. It's something that those who uh, have fallen on tough times or those who are poor have to get up and go and get themselves, but it's left there for them. The provision is there, but they go and get it themselves, Toby. Yeah? I have to just say this. So the previous Parsha, they're really all connected. The previous Parsha tells that we're supposed to be God-like and we're creating the image of God. And just as God is merciful and takes care of every living soul and, and takes care of food for everyone, we have to be God-like. And therefore, it, God, just as God shares all this plenty with us, we must share, we must do what is just. And Sadaka, this is a type of charity in a sense, meaning, but the charity is the bad word. The, this is what's just. So that's why you I need time with you. You know, God is saying, like your husband, we need time together. In fact, what is the name for what is the name for a holiday? It's called a moed. And what does moed really mean? Moed really means a time, like Jason alluded to earlier, and also means a meeting. We got to get together. That's why the ohel moed is called the tent of meeting. It's the exact same word. What it means is we need to meet sometimes. We need Shabbos. We need to get together once a week. We want a relationship. We need that. You want it. We have three times a year. You have to come to the land of Israel and you have to uh, participate in the Shalash Regalim. We go up. We need time together. A relationship that's going to less, we need time together. Come meet me, come see me. You built a house for me because you're creating the image of God. Come up and meet me. And that's what the word moed means. And don't do any work. That means, And it's not all yours. Remember, I gave it to you. I gave you this, all this abundance of your, of your field. But now the law here is very specifically, by the way, is that when you harvest your field, you have to leave the, the corners unharvested so the poor can come. It's free for anybody to take. Also, let's say you're carrying a bundle of wheat with you and if a couple of sheaves of wheat fall on the ground, you're not allowed to pick it up. You have to leave it there. And you cannot, and every poor person can come and take it. It's free for them to take. That's mm-hmm. Leket and Shechel. And, and it's great because it, it maintains a level of dignity for the person who has to go and Sure, uh, it's theirs. And, and glean. It's, not, it's not yours. It's not, yes, right. So moving on, verse 23, Yom Teruah. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, in the seventh month on the first day, of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a stop, memorial. Stop, scream, scream, <laughs> scream. I'm asking you. So is this like, uh, or alone, the Talmud, the Pharisee, it is a day, it's Sabbath, the day after Sabbath. What did we just read? I want to zet it. If you're listening to the show, I want to smash this into your head right now. So that's it. So you walk away and spit behind you, this stupidity. No, because you know, there are the people who say this. I don't know the bad people. They don't know any better. Look at here. It's like the the, lunat- the lunatic, whatever they call the lunasab- <laughs> lunatics. So here, look here, watch here. Okay, 
I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll move fast, okay? I just need to show you, incontrovertibly, that Shabbos here does not mean the Sabbath as in the Saturday, but it means a day of rest. Mm-hmm. Watch, 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 watch. I'm going to Hebrew, read in Hebrew, listen to the Hebrew, it'll make your neshama delicious. Vayadabra Hashem HaMashalema, this is verse 23 of chapter 23, verse 24. Say to the Jewish people saying, whenever you have that repetition, as Jason beautifully pointed out, it means not only should you say it, but every Jew has to repeat over to the next generation. Watch this. Bachaydish Hashvi, which means on the seventh a month, on the seventh month, on the first day of the month, Yelochem will be to you, Shabbason, will be a Sabbath. Zichrain Terua, a day of, a, a, a remembrance of the blowing of the shofar. Mikra Kosh will be holy. And, and what does it mean, Shabbos? But it can't be. You got it? This is the first day of the month. The first day of the month doesn't have to come out on Saturday. The first day of the month can come out on any day. Just when the new moon comes. Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with Saturday. Does Saturday have any, listen to me, any person who doubts this. Does Saturday have anything to do with the moon? Are you insane? There's no relationship to Saturday and the moon. Nothing. Zero. There's no numerical relationship between 29 or 30 days and seven. It's not. It doesn't work out because it's a, a, a three... So and look at the words. Look at see no. It says Shabbos, Shabbos, Hilachem. It is a Sabbath for you, and therefore now look at Mikra Kodesh. It's called holy. And now look at the next words. In case you're not sure what I told you, you say, Ah, oh, he's some rabbi. He's a fake. You know, the Pharisees are the most evil people next to Satan. They're all Satan, the demons, and you know they're all the Pharisees. You know, Talmud, uh, Talmud's like all about raping people. So this. <laughs> I mean, there's a stupidity that people engage in. Look, yes, you see with your own delicious, beautiful eyes, you see it, and close the book and give Hashem a kiss and stop running around. All... Next verse, verse 25. How do you know I said Shabbos means set rest, not the seventh day? How do you it's know I'm telling you work. Let's go here. Next verse 25. Therefore, call Melech Savoida Loisasu. Therefore, no kind of work is permitted to be done. Be craft to Israel Hashem, and you should bring a fire offering to God. So it openly says that Shabbos here does not mean the seventh day of the week. It means the day that you must rest and abstain from work. That's why it's a foolishness when you say the day after Sabbath. The day after Sabbath means the day after the first day of 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 Rosh Hashanah. That's of Passover. Doesn't mean you have to wait till Saturday and do it on Sunday. It's like you have to do it on Sunday, like the Christians. All right, let's continue. Okay. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is. The I should next get one. a for the for this show. I should get a commission. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, I think we should renegotiate the. Over and above. Okay. <laughs> and the and the Lord's Boats Moses saying also the tenth day of the seventh month uh, shall be uh, a day of atonement, Yom Kippur, it shall be a holy convocation to you. You shall afflict your souls. Stop there, Tobia. Yeah, so here it doesn't tell us what what it means to afflict your soul. Like what do you feel like Shia Muslims they go they actually they the Muslim in Islam they actually adapted this called Ashra. It's an Islamic holiday, but they took it literally from, it says in the Quran they took it literally from the Jews because that was the young kipper. So they smacked themselves on the back with, with metal whips. It's really unbelievable. Mm. But the question on the head. Yeah. Yeah, they smash their head open. Now the reason they do this is <laughs> the weird. No, the reason they do this is because they're angry at the, whole, the murder of Ali. It's really a very sad stretch. But the key point is, what does this mean? And you should afflict yourself. Now, as it turns out, 
if you think, you can say, well, it's subjective. Whatever you think it means. If you, it means, you know, not wearing nice stuff. It means sleeping on the floor. It means like this. It's subjective. It can't be. Why? Because Torah says that the, the penalty for a person who doesn't do this is death. The person is cut off from their people. It's car race. It's heavenly death penalty. It can't be subjective. Because if it's subjective, how do you get a death penalty in there? The person will say, well, I don't consider that to be afflicting my soul. I think it's, you know, just hanging out with my mother-in-law. That's afflicting. <laughs> you know, so that means that it's subjective. For me, it's drinking warm milk. That's what it is. So the answer is there are five things that are forbidden. This is the oral Torah, but I'll show it to you in a moment that it's actually alluded to actually openly in Tanakh, um, in the in the book of Isaiah. The five things that are forbidden on Yom Kippur is eating, drinking, anointing yourself with oil, bathing, and marital relations. So those are the five things it is forbidden to do, uh, forbidden for Yom Kippur. And just so people know the fasting uh, on Yom Kippur, not eating or drinking is a very serious matter, and it begins the night before. I mean, it's not like other fasts. There are only two fasts like this out of the fasts of the Jewish calendar. To this and Tisha B'Av, you start fasting the night before, as soon as the holiday begins, or the fast day begins, and you don't end it for 25 hours until the, it's night. The other fast... Tavia? Yes. Can, can I... Um, I just want to jump in quickly. Now, this is... Um, I think it's kind of unique in the whole of the Torah in that if we were to apply um, a basic Torah principle of, of taking the word afflict and then finding all the other places the word is used, we won't find fasting, will we? We'll find slavery and rape and beating and lots of cruel things because um, when you afflict somebody, you're generally doing something bad to them. And so if we were going to go... If we were going to use the text, if we were, um, if we were a person who said, "I'm just going to go by the Torah, and I'm just going to go by the Tanakh, and I'm not going to use," or some people will only go by the Torah, I'm not going to use any external information, then it would be impossible for them, wouldn't it? But using this text hmm. to come to the conclusion that this means fasting, if they're going to use the word. Um, affliction, then they would have to use a definition of affliction that's in the text. Would that be fair? Yes, yes. And as I alluded to earlier, yes, of course. Because what do you mean? You have to go rape a slave? I mean, <laughs> the craziness of that. But actually, we, we could see it. This is actually a softball. Because in the way to really show the oral Torah easily is... Um, is it, there are two major places. Most famous is Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, uh, just so you get a context, this is very important, it's really a very important show. So Isaiah 58, God calls out to Isaiah and he says, he basically says, make your voice like a trumpet and call out to the Jewish people and tell them they're just doing terrible things, okay? And then terrible, terrible criticism. At the end, it ends very beautifully. But first, you're, you're not doing it right now. What happens is, the question is, is like Isaiah's like looking, but you know, they're, 
they're they're keeping the Sabbath. They are fasting on the Sabbath of Sabbaths. It openly says that in Isaiah. So the fasting is explicit in the book of Isaiah. I I, I write this in my book, but I, I, years ago I had a conversation with a missionary who doesn't believe in the oral law, and he says, oh, you know." So I showed this to him. I said, "Here you see openly Isaiah is saying that what this affliction means is it means not eating." So he said, yeah, so it's not oral law. It's in the book of Isaiah. So I said, that's what he, he said to me. You got it? He said, it's not oral law. It's open in the book of Isaiah. And you see the same thing in Zechariah 7 and 8. So he, he says it's in the Bible. I said, let me ask you a question. How long after the Torah was given did Isaiah live? He didn't know. I said, it's about 600 years. So for those 600 years, the Jewish people did not have the book of Isaiah. And they certainly didn't have Zechariah. So what did they do for those 600 years? And that was the end of it. And this, in like a week, this fellow went up to Israel to study in Yeshiva. But the point is, is that that it openly we see that in the prophets we find this all over the place. The prophets talk about the, like the Chemia don't buy and sell on Shabbos day and all these things that are not anywhere found in Torah but openly in the oral Torah all over the place. We can go much further than this, but these are the five things that are forbidden on on Yom Kippur because on Yom hmm. Kippur we are now we're not really supposed to. It's not really supposed to deliver us, deliver pain to ourselves. The key point is we're supposed to separate from the physical and, and, and become basically like angels. That's why we wear even a white, um, yeah. kittle. It's a custom to wear and so on, but we just yeah. simply, if for one day the heavens are open, a person could atone for sins, confess and, and, and repent for their sins on any day. But there's a certain day which is the most propitious for repenting, and that's Yom Kippur. And that's a day that we just simply separate ourselves from our physical body, and we just are in tuned spiritually. And that's what these things are designed to do. And that's the 10th of the seventh month. It says in verse 32, it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. Yes. And you shall, now, you again, shall... again, if you weren't there paying attention to you, if you weren't paying attention, oh, the singer, he's an anti-missionary. He's, he's just like this. He has an agenda. He's a Talmudic, whatever. He's the lowest thing. He doesn't pay his parking tickets. So here it says openly again, Yom Kippur is called Shabbos. Well, what, how did that get to be Shabbos? How could the tenth day of the seventh month be Shabbos? How could it can't be regular? The new moon has nothing to do with what day. The new moon does go. Oh, it's like sitting there with say arms folded. When is it Saturday? No, new moon doesn't care. And by the way, if Rosh Hashanah, the first day is Shabbos, just I'm just playing with you just to prove it. So this is slam dunk. Goodbye. Good night. Go home. If Shabbos is Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the month, then the tenth day can't be a Saturday. I have to be right, as always. Let us continue. <laughs> then, then, is, this too, is this show too complicated for you? Or, yeah, we, I'm joking. Go ahead. Just I'll show you, this is incontrovertible. The, the issue is, I'm going to tell you honestly, that the, most of the people who are involved in all these groups, we don't believe in this, they don't know any better. They don't know what I'm telling you. Don't go beat them up. Don't smash them over the head. But just slowly show them and teach them. But this is nonsense. This is so explicit in this chapter. Shabbos means rest, does not mean Saturday. And therefore, that's when we start counting. Let us continue. Sukkot, the 15th day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles. For seven days to the Lord, on the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You should do no customary work on it. For seven days, you shall offer an offering made by fire's thought on the eighth day. That's interesting, isn't it? For seven days. And then on the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation. 
You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord as a sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work on it. Right. So that's it. And there, and there it is. So it's a Sabbath to the Lord and so on. And, and, and there this, uh, we, we are now coming to the end of chapter 23, um, where we're, we're told this is a, a, a moe, a time, a meeting time. Mm. We just meet with God. Now, now one of the things I just want to pose to the audience for a moment. But there are other Jewish holidays. Like, where is Hanukkah? Wouldn't why don't we have Hanukkah listed there's, here? There's Purim in this list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so a Purim there isn't really like something. So it's a very interesting thing. Our sages tell us that Hanukkah is actually alluded here. Now, I want you to watch what Jono just did. He actually went through the whole year. It means we start, it's very logical. First we talk about the Sabbath itself. That's how it began. And then it just goes from the first month all the way through. So just look at it. Really very simple. What we just did in chapter 23. We went through, we, st- we started off with the Passover. It's the first month. Of course that makes sense. We went to Shavuos 50 days later. It makes perfect sense. It's all in perfect chronological order. Then what goes next is Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the seventh month. What's next? Yom Kippur. It's the tenth day of the seventh month. What's next? Sukkot is the 15th day of the month. And stop. Okay? Now, Hanukkah, we have a mitzvah to light the menorah. Now, it's not there. Why? Because, after all, everyone will tell you, Hanukkah didn't happen yet. At the time, it was written in the Torah, Hanukkah didn't happen. Hanukkah is not going to happen for another 1,200 years. You know, something like that. About 1,100, 1,200 years later. So, wh- where is the lighting of the menorah? Like, where is where is that? Well, it isn't there because it didn't happen yet, so it wasn't assigned yet, so it never made its way into the canon. What is? But if it did, this is what I want to ask you guys this question. If the commandment to light the menorah, if there would be any allusion to it, where chronologically would it belong? Chronologically, it would be next on the list because it ah, happens. Exactly. It happens right after Sukkot. Now start reading verse 24 and look at what we're introduced to, even though we had it before. Yeah. 24, start reading. Chapter 24, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually. Right. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Is. Now, what's important is we actually have discussed the menorah prior to this. So right smack in the middle of this, suddenly we're getting lamps. Like, what is what is the menorah doing there suddenly? Or could it be, could it be, that in fact... This is an allusion to it because it it fits perfectly. That the the break is is just if you go after the break, the f- next thing we learn about is lighting a menorah. Wow, exactly where we would expect it, where it would belong chronologically. Could be uh, Jason. Could be a Bible code. Could be a Bible code. It's it's what's your, what you're implying, uh, Tobias. Is it's more than a coincidence. Yes, yes, right. Because okay. we'll, we actually have different words here: the lights and the light, the lamp and the light. It's really quite beautiful. The neros is the plural, and it's the identical language of of thing. And notice here something I want to point out. This goes what Jason said was really amazing. Notice that 
prior to this, we were talking about a time when it's a moed, when it's a certain time of the year mm-hmm. where um, where we meet God. And we talked about the fact that moed also means like oh, the tent of the meeting. It's a time when we need to spend time together, okay, and stop doing any other work. This is just you and me in Jerusalem at the temple. But notice here in this, and also we can go to the I wonder, listen, ask yourself, does any word pop up here? So you've just read this with the menorah. Is there any word that is popping up here all the time? And we can go a little further. You'll see it, you'll see it a little bit more. But, um, okay. But anyways, if you notice that you're seeing here, and when it comes to the, the, the showbread, you're going to see here the word coming up always is continually, continually, continually. With the menorah, it's continually. It's it's continually, always. That's different. That means what goes on in the base I make is God rests his place there continually. The yeah. lighting of the menorah, the showbread. You know, showbread is an amazing thing. The showbread is a was a bread that they baked it, you know, um, at the beginning of the week, and it, it was a miracle that was done. It never went stale, and it was there all the time. And as soon as they baked the new bread, then they removed the other bread, the show bread, and it was given to the priests. And it was fresh like it was just baked. That was a miracle that was done. And that was holy. You couldn't, a, a, a non-coin was forbidden to eat that. I mean, they have one exception with David because he was dying. But in one cannot eat that and it, therefore it's show bread you always see the bread there and of course on the other side is the menorah the other eye that which you can see the light of God God is always there we need to have our time together we need to have our, you know, our place together to enjoy our dates like a date with God we have to renew our relationship every week a few times a year but what goes on in the temple it's always the light is always there the showbread is always there. Mm-hmm. There it is. Now, it, our Torah portion ends, uh, well, as we come to a close uh, in the Torah portion, uh, we, get a, uh, we get a story, Tobia. Jason, it's uh, the penalty for blasphemy is what it's in, uh, t- uh, subtitled in my New King James Study Bible. It says, Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and this Israelite woman's son uh, and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomit, the daughter of Debri, and of the tribe of Dan. Uh, They put him in in custody that uh, the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take outside the camp him who has cursed and let All who heard him lay their hands on his head and let the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is in the land. Uh, When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. What you have here is the case of an intermarriage or interrelationship. Uh, just technically in Jewish law, I know I'm going to drive everyone nuts, but a Jew cannot marry a non-Jew, okay? Mm-hmm. That means they can't. There's, it's like marrying your, your your sister. It just can't. There's no condition. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, that, we read something different in, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, right? Right. So we're forbidden to sleep with somebody who's not Jewish 
or set up camp as though you are married, any of those things. Let me, let me give you the area where in Jewish law the difference is enormous. Because there is no kedushin, because the Torah when it talks about um, uh, taking a wife, it says that there has to be kedushin, you should take her. You can't have kedushin, which means you can't have that that sanctity between a Jew and a non-Jew cannot exist. And therefore, they are not married in the eyes of God. Now, it's forbidden to sleep with someone who's not a Jewish or for a Jew. It's forbidden to cohabitate, whether it's as husband and wife, whether it's a, a one-night stand, it's forbidden. You're not allowed to do any of those things. But the key point is there is no kedushin which means that there's no so for let's say you have an intermarried couple, okay, a Jew and a non-Jew, mm-hmm. and let's say they decide they want to get divorced. In Jewish law, they don't require a divorce because they were never married; they were just living together as husband and wife. But they're not. They were, there's no marriage there, and therefore no divorce is necessary. This has nothing to do with the laws of Australia or Ireland. I'm not, that's different. But in Jewish law, there's no divorce. In in uh, in Jewish law. There's there's no possibility of adultery there because it, it does not recognize that as a marriage. In contrast, we had that in the beginning of this chapter that a uh, a priest uh, is forbidden to uh, marry certain women, let's say a divorcee. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they do get married, the, the the we didn't go into great detail here. The, the kedushin is chal, which means the the. They are legally married. You have to, the community has to get them to separate because they're not allowed to marry each other, but there is a marriage. It is a kedushin. Um, but in the case of a Jew and a Gentile, that's why, for instance, in Ezra chapter 10, it doesn't say go divorce your wife. It just says send them away. It means you had the intermarriage. You had the case of Jewish men, 114 of them that are enumerated, uh, and they're told, send away your wife with their children. It doesn't say, and give well, them a, a, a bill of divorcement. Yep, so now we're getting off the track, but what we have uh, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 20 uh, relates specifically to Ezra chapter 10, and it's talking about, of course, the, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jezubite, uh, all these guys, we have a specific law to tell us that uh, no contracts will be entered into. You do not give your daughters as uh, as wives for them. You you don't marry them at all. Right. They're right. off the list, and they they were on the list of uh, Ezra chapter. You, 10. you shall not take them for your son for your daughters. Right, you can't, you can't do now, that. Now, what we have in twenty one is when you go out uh, to war against those not not on that list, but those far away. It says, uh, "Thus thus you shall do to the cities which are very far away from you." Uh, and you see a, a, you take them captive, and you you see you find among the captives woman, a beautiful right. woman. You yes. desire her, and would, would take her for your wife. Uh, and then, so it, it seems, Toby, that it's making a uh, that making that a possibility. It is a possibility. It was a possibility with Ruth. It was a Moabite. Okay, that means with, with so this Ruth piece, obviously I'd like to converted. Jump in to, yeah, and ask about um, Moses's Cushite wife. 
Mm. Right. So that was, I mean, be- how- that was before the Torah was given. Oh, yeah, that's fair. Right. Okay. Every okay. Jew, you have to remember the same thing as Joseph, but you have to remember that uh, um, that we, what converts are really doing is is we're all converts. That means I'm a convert. The only thing is I went through the conversion process at Mount Sinai. I went in the water at Mount Sinai. So what a person is entering the nation of Israel when they're converting is really how to think about it is they're doing what all the other people who self-identify as Jews have already done. We did it. Now you do what the Jews did at Mount Sinai, namely take, you know, accept the Torah in the case of men, circumcision and immersing in water, which is exactly what the Jews did. So converts essentially are doing the Sinai experience. Uh, and in fact, that they would have to bring a sacrifice. Normally, it was done in Mount Sinai, but today we can't bring a, a sacrifice. That's not possible. So that's what a convert is really doing. Hmm. Okay. So, in either case, what what seems to be, and it's interesting the the detail that we don't have in this story. But what seems to be, uh, I mean, reading between the lines, he goes out uh, among the Danites and is not treated as an equal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he he he's uh, whatever it is. Uh, seems to be the case that uh, an argument breaks out, it turns violent. And uh, in the whole situation, this uh, uh, son of an, uh, of an Egyptian father curses God, uh, blasphemes the name, which uh, which clearly is just the, the, the sin of sins, and what is done with him is that he is stoned to death. Yeah, okay, so uh, let me first explain what happened here and how did this make it into the Torah. We actually know that cursing God is forbidden. Why Why do we need this story? It means, what does this add to the prohibition of it's forbidden to curse God, which we have in other places of Scripture? So here is a very unique situation. So first of all, we see here that the son of a Jewish woman, and the Hebrew is Ben Isha Yisraelis, literally a son of a woman who is a Yisraelis, a Jew, who Ben Ish Mitzri. So here we have an intermarriage, Jewish mother, non-Jewish father. So we have our intermarriage case, and therefore the child is Jewish. Now, as I meant, we mentioned earlier on in this uh, very brief show that, uh, that um, um, so that when a person is, let's say, a convert or is a product of an intermarriage, they don't have a place to stay. This is very critical. They have no place. Where, that means they don't have a tribe. So where do they live? So the answer is that they go to one of the tribes and they ask them, can I stay with you? And this is what happened to Dan. What happened is he went to Dan and the, Dan was punished for this much later on in the Bible. We'll talk about another time. But Dan did a horrible thing. And that's why this was a questionable issue. Dan basically threw him out on his head. He said, can I stay with you guys? My father's an Egyptian. I don't have a tribe. Can I just stay, hang out with you? I am a Jew. And Dan just said, get out of here, you half-breed. God only knows what they called him. And he then was so angry, he cursed God. And that's why this text is in here, because this is an edgy case. This case is a case where, like, why did Moses have to struggle with this? The answer is that this boy, this is like a case where you could have argued as a, there was a mitigating factor involved. And even though what he did was clearly a violation of of the Torah, and does it because why was it even curse God? It's like 
Like, what, if you don't believe in him, like, atheists don't go around cursing God because they don't believe in God. It's like, why would you curse the creator of the universe? The answer is that, you know, I, I hate you. It's like, I want nothing to do with this. I just, I curse you. And he used God's name in this curse. So, therefore, there's a mitigating circumstance here. Now, the fact that the tribe of Dan did not allow him in, they're going to be held accountable for this later on in the Bible. However... He had, he could not, cursing God was still forbidden, therefore he was put to death through stoning. But he did it, Davka, especially, he, it was almost like, you know, they have suicide by police, which means that he, there are people who want to die, but they don't have the guts to kill themselves, so they go and shoot, a, hold a gun up to a cop, and the cop kills them. That's how they just want to die that way. So what he did was he publicly went and cursed God. There's no sort of, this would be very, very hard to prove. You need to witness someone, but it was everyone was there. He just saying, I'm out of here. I'm cutting myself off. This is a very tricky case because uh, Dan uh, ignited his rage by not giving him a place to stay. And this is a very unfortunate situation. Mm. And uh, so that is what happens to him. But it continues on, and it's interesting that these are placed here. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, uh, as he has done, so shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have... So, just major, major point here. So, what what would you do if a blind person blinds somebody else? Let's say a guy who's blind throws acid in someone else's eyes, and now that person's blind. What do you do? Poke out the eyes of a blind man? You've done nothing. So it, it, the oral thought tells us here that, in fact, when it, in the case of, uh, of killing a person, person is put to death. But in the case of all these things where a guy pluck injures somebody, the person has to monetarily compensate them with kesef, with money, they don't actually break the guy's hands or or chop his hands or any of those kinds of things. I mean, how, how does that help the guy you, you injured? In fact, a, a great area of, of Jewish civil law is how do you assess the value? And I am not going into it. You have to pay for his doctor bills and the embarrassment, the loss of future wages and so on. But if you see... Ayin tachas ayin, an eye for an eye. So it's very interesting. I'll just show you one thing, verse 20. It says, mm. an eye for an eye. So if you look at it, I'll show you one thing, because we can be on this forever. I'll look here, you'll see actually an allusion to it, if you like your Torah codes. So if you look at ayin tachas ayin in Hebrew, okay? You see those mm. three words? Those three words? Ayin. So what does tachas mean? This is the this is the fourth, fifth, and sixth Hebrew word. So ayin tachas ayin. It doesn't really mean four. The word tachas really means under. Tachas means underneath. So it's a very interesting thing. So the the Vilna Gaon, who's a great rabbi of the 17th century of the 18th century, excuse me, he says that take a look at what it's saying here. Ayin. If you poke out someone's eye, tachas ayin. Go underneath the eye. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you look carefully, you take a look at the word ayin. It's spelled ayin yud nun. If you know your Hebrew alphabet, you can say, what is the letter underneath each of those letters? So what's tach? Because tach is a strange word here. So it's just say for an eye. But here, ayin, what's the next letter? Pay. Right, pay. The yud, the middle letter, is a yud. What's the next letter under it? A kaf. A nun, what's the next letter under it? Samach. What does that spell out? Kesef. So it actually is saying, 
um, money under an eye. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, uh, what what you're saying is uh, compensation. It's heavy compensation. I, I, it's this is the whole Talmud uh, tractate and Bava Kamas. How do you assess compensation? How do you a guy loses his eye? How much is an eye worth? So it's complicated now. What his pain is? What his embarrassment? How much embarrassment? His future wages? He can't work anymore. His doctor bills? His pain? How do you assess pain? So th- this is a huge, huge area of Jewish law and the of. Of damages and torts is huge. How do you assess the value of his embarrassment? He's walking around for the rest of his life with one arm missing. People are going to look at him. That's embarrassment. He has to be combat. That's called boishas. So there's actually five different elements of his pain, his doctor bills, is the fact that he's unemployed, and the fact that he is embarrassed by this. All these things. If, if someone pokes out someone else's eye what what how does it help the the guy who's now blind by poking mm. out the offender's eye what does it do for him he can't he, he has now he's an eye is gone he now right. can't work the rest yes, of his life is blind so well, i'm going to pluck out his eye so great that helps him a lot that doesn't help him at all. So if the person, that's why it makes sense. If the person dies, so you can't do anything for him, the only just thing is he is put to death. That's a capital offense. But the key is when it comes to um, eye or tooth or any of these things, it's assessed of what is the value in that person's mm-hmm. pay. It's a massive amount of money when all is put together. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for the one of your own country. I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stoned stones so that he uh, so that the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses that ends our Torah portion but it's interesting to note that uh, that story ends with the last verse in the middle of that uh, is enveloped uh, the story envelops those additional laws that God sees fit to include in in uh, the discussion mm, yeah. I like the way that it goes from uh it goes from the story about the the guy that um, couldn't find um, a home within the tribes being mm. um, abused to what will happen to you if you abuse anybody, regardless of, of where they come from. Um, and I know I'm going to rattle on a little bit uh, because uh, it's also important to remember when we read any of these passages that these are explicit instructions given to explicit people. And when we read the beginning and it says, and the Lord God said unto Moses, speak to the children of Israel, he's talking about the sons of Jacob in that instance. And when we finish the verse and it says, this is um, to be a law for the stranger as well as the homeborn or the native. It's speaking about what we've just read. Mm. It doesn't necessarily mean everything ever. You're looking at you're looking at a point of, of information and instruction where at the end God's going to say, and this is for everyone that lives with you. It doesn't necessarily mean that the same instruction is for everybody in the world or even everybody in in the gate posts of Israel. It's just for that bit. It's really important that we don't skip over and assume that just because we read that there's a lo- this, this Torah is for the stranger and the homeborn, we don't whitewash the whole Torah with that phrase. That's correct. Um, and I'll comment on that further, and that is, unlike Matthew 15 and Mark 7, which says that Gentiles are dogs, uh, they're not. They're creating the image of God, and therefore these laws of damages and injuries applies to everybody. There it is. 
I would like to remind everybody that uh, Torah Pearls, we're going to be doing it live in November on the Tanakh tour. And that Torah portion, if I do remember correctly, I think is Lech Lecha. So I'm looking forward to doing Torah Pills again live with, with you guys in November. There's still seats available on the bus. So uh, if you would like to come with us, and of course you would like to come with us, go to truth2u.org, truth2u.org, and click on Tanakh Tour of Israel 2016 and follow the, uh, the links. All the information that you need is there. We would love you to join us. And uh, can I, can I uh, direct people to go over to our Outreach Judaism and pick up a copy of uh, Tovia's uh, two-volume work, uh, Let's Get Biblical. It's absolutely awesome. The content, the Torah content and the Tanakh content in there is extreme, and you're still going to get a ton of stuff from it, even if you're not really interested in how the conversation would happen with a Christian. So uh, head over there. They're really great value for money. Mm. They're huge tomes of books. You'll be pouring over them for months to come, and I'd recommend them to anyone. You should definitely go and get that if you haven't got it already. OutreachJudaism.org. OutreachJudaism.org is Tovia's website. You can also find the books on Amazon, I do believe. Also, TovioSinger.tv is where you'll find all of his videos. Thank you, my friend, and Jason of SpiritualBabies.net until we record again. And you know what? There are a couple of uh, uh, other Torah pills that we didn't get to do last year. We will be getting to them this year. Until then, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Thank you.